Hello, everyone, and welcome to Petite to Queen's Claim Your Career Crown podcast. I'm your host, Lynn, and today I'm joined by our VP of Operations, Amanda, and our very special guest, Frank King. Today, we're going to be talking about a very important topic, suicide prevention. And I want to tell you a little bit about Frank. For any of you who don't know who he is, Frank is a comedian. He's a speaker and a TEDx coach, and he really focuses on suicide prevention. And he does that both speaking and training. And as a comedian, he has appeared on A&E's An Evening at the Improv, Showtime's Comedy Club Network, and CNN's Business Usual. Unusual. <laughs> and uh, Frank has also written for Jay Leno, Joan Rivers, and Dennis Miller, and has opened for Jerry Seinfeld, Adam Sandler, Jeff Foxworthy, and Ron White. My goodness, you have been in some incredible rooms there. And in addition to comedy, Frank coaches others in speaking and to prepare to give TEDx talks. And really what we're going to be working on is how Frank helps the world in providing the tools to prevent suicide. Frank, welcome so much. We're glad to have you on the show today. Well, I'm delighted to be here. I am delighted to be here. (laughs) Given my mental health and physical health history, I am delighted to be here. Yeah, all right. Okay. And before we get started, for anyone who's joining us for that very first time, please don't miss a single episode by subscribing to Claim Your Career Crown wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, if you've loved the show, please uh, give us that five-star review. We would appreciate it. All right. So, Frank, let's sort of get right into this because it's really a fascinating backstory about how you became a comedian and then a suicide prevention speaker and trainer. Can you share a little bit about that? Yes, that's usually the elephant in the room when I speak. People are thinking, a comedian? (laughs) Talking about depression, thoughts of suicide? How does that work? Well, I think a comedian's a good choice because if you think about it, the world's first comedian was the court jester. Their job was to speak truth to power on behalf of the powerless with humor. And I believe I speak truth to the power of mental illness on behalf of those often powerless in its grip with humor. I believe where there's humor, there's hope, where there's laughter, there's life, that nobody dies laughing. And the reason I think I'm a good choice is depression and suicide run in my family. My grandmother died by suicide, my mother found her, my great aunt died by suicide, my mother and I found her. I was four years old and I screamed for days. And I myself came close enough to dying by suicide in April of 2010 after losing everything my wife and I had put together in 25 years of marriage in a Chapter 7 bankruptcy that I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. Uh, Spoiler alert, I did not pull the trigger. A friend of mine saw me keynote recently. He'd never heard me say that I didn't pull the trigger. He came up. He thought he'd be funny. He goes, hey, man. I go, he didn't pull the trigger. I go, hey, man. Could you try to sound slightly less disappointed? So that's why I think I'm a good choice. I started comedy in the fourth grade, told a joke. All the kids laughed. The teacher was so hysterical. She had to excuse herself to go to the teacher's lounge. I decided at that moment in fourth grade, I'm going to be a comedian. Twelfth grade, they had a talent show. Nobody had ever done stand-up before. I did stand-up. I won. I told my mother I was going to be a stand-up comedian. My mom's family, big into education. She goes, son, you're going to college first. I don't care what you do when you get done. You can be a goat herder for all I care. But you're going to be a goat herder with a college degree. So I went to Chapel Hill, UNC Chapel Hill, got a couple of degrees, moved to San Diego, went to work for my first wife's father's insurance company. And 
there was a comedy store, is a comedy store, still there, same spot that is connected with the world-famous comedy store on Sunset in L.A. Did my first open mic night, and that was the end of my first marriage and my insurance career. So I, I, I was on stage during my first five minutes, and inside my head, I heard a little voice say, you're home. My next thought was, I'm going to do this for a living. I have no idea how. Uh, I, I threatened to write a keynote called, what could you do if you didn't know no better? I didn't know no better. I had no idea how difficult it is to make a living doing stand-up. But, you know, it was my passion. So I did that till the mid-90s. Got a job in Raleigh, my old hometown, at a radio station doing a morning show. And by the time I got fired 18 months later, I took a number one morning show and drove it to number six. And a friend of mine goes, you didn't drive in the ground. You drove that thing in the middle earth. And by the time that was over, the comedy club scene was winding down. So having been a clean comic all that time, the dirty little secret about clean comedy is it pays a whole lot better. So I made the jump from the barroom to the boardroom, from comedy club to corporate. I did corporate comedy for 10 years till the last recession. And that's when the business dropped off 80% when the recession was over. The meeting planner speakers bureau said to me, Frank, we love you. We can't pay that kind of money anymore because that's making good money. Just to be funny, you need to teach our audience something. I'm like, oh, man, what in the world? And I'd always wanted to do that. I'd always wanted to make a living and a difference. Just never could figure out what I had to teach anybody. And then I read a book by a friend of mine named Judy Carter called The Message of You. Subtitle is amazing. Turn your life into a money-making speaking career. Went into the book thinking I got nothing. Halfway through, I thought, son of a gun, I've got a story. My family's history, more nuts in my family than in a squirrel turd. My history, if I get some suicide prevention training, which I have, I could keynote on suicide prevention. What I didn't know at the time was hardly anybody talks about depression, thoughts of suicide, unless you bring it up. And then almost everybody has a story about themselves, about a loved one, a friend. And so that's really what I get paid to do. I get paid to come in and my clients tell me this all the time. We just brought you in here to start the conversation on suicide, because what it does is if I get on stage and I'm vulnerable, I read Brene Brown's book on vulnerability. And about halfway through, I thought, oh, my God, that's my superpower because I'm a guy and guys don't usually reveal those kind of things. And I get a little choked up and it gives people in the audience permission to give voice to their feelings and experiences surrounding depression and thoughts of suicide without recrimination. And I've been told things. I tell my speakers that I train who are going to do something on, say, mental health or sexual assault or trauma. you got to allow a half an hour after all is said and done because there'll be a line of people. Everybody, you know, eight to 10 people got a story, a question. So that 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 tells me and people tell me stuff they've never told anybody. Yeah. You know, I'm on a ship working doing stand up comedy. I did it for about 10 years. Couldn't find a seat for breakfast. Saw a woman at a table for two empty chair. I point. She nods. I sit. She goes, hey, man, are you the comedian? I go, did you enjoy the show? She goes, I love the comedy show. Well, then I'm the comedian. She laughed. She goes, what would you say if I told you I hated it? Well, they say I look a lot like him. She says, is there anything else you do besides cruise comedy? Very common question. I said, I'm a public speaker. And if you don't mind me bragging a bit, I just nailed down my first TEDx talk. She goes, I love the TEDx talks. What's the topic? Well, I figured, Lynn, that I knew what was coming. So I said to her, depression and suicide and started to count down in my head. Three, two, one. Sure enough, she goes, Frank, I tried to kill myself twice. We just met. First time in college, kind of half hard, not a big deal. Second time, far more serious. I graduated college. I graduated medical school. 
had the knowledge, had the equipment. I had an IV started in my ankle. As soon as I had cocktail, one hand syringe, another getting ready to load it up. Phone rings. Now she thinks, do I answer it? I better because it might be somebody who worried, come over and interrupt. Picks up the phone, 13-year-old son. She goes, I don't know if you heard something in my voice or had a premonition, but he said, mom, don't do anything. So she said, I didn't. I didn't give up on the idea of suicide, but I wasn't going to do it that day because I knew he would always feel guilty. Wasn't there something he could do or say to stop my suicide? Well, the good news is, Lynn, and we can talk about this later, there are things you can do. There are things you can say to stop a suicide. I said, how old is he now? She said, he's 21. I said, does he know his phone call saved your life? And she said, no. How do you start that conversation? And I thought you do a TEDx talk. So I've done five more after that, all on one aspect of mental health or the other. So it is my purpose, my passion. And, you know, it gets me out of bed in the morning. And I myself am mentally ill. I have two things, major depressive disorder, better known as depression, and something rare called chronic suicidal ideation, which means for me and people in my tribe, the option of suicide is always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. I tell the audience, look, here's how small it is. My car broke down a couple of years ago. I had three thoughts unbidden. Get it fixed, buy new, and I could just kill myself. At which point they're laughing. Yeah, it's okay. I said, I know it's absurd, but I got to tell you, every time I've spoken since 2014, there's been at least one person in the audience, sometimes more. They have that condition. They have no idea it has a name. They think they're just some kind of freak because of the way their brain works and completely alone. This show for college, young woman comes up and goes, thanks for your keynote. I said, you're welcome. She goes, but I got to tell you, it made me weep. How did it make you weep? She goes, you know the story you told about the car, get it fixed, buy a new and kill yourself? I've been having those thoughts all my life. I didn't know that had a name. I thought I was just some kind of freak and completely alone. Then I heard you say that out loud, realized, in fact, I'm not alone, and I wept. There's a Laura lie for you. That's how I made the transition from comedy to radio to comedy to speaking. Yeah, I really love what you're doing, and I really think it's it's valuable that you're bringing such a difficult topic to such a space that's usually so welcoming and um, inviting for people. And I mean, depression and su- suicidal ideation are so common um, among the general population. They're present in my family as well. Um, why why do people die by suicide, and what are some of the things that put people at risk of of being in that position of wanting to commit suicide? Well, the um, people often think, ask me, why does so-and-so want to kill themselves? Why does so-and-so want to die? And in most cases, the person in my case, I didn't want to die. Most cases, people just simply want to end the pain. And that's the only way they can figure to do it. And, And people say it's a selfish act. Well, yes and no. One of the things that many people, most people, have in their brain and their mind when they have suicidality is called burdensomeness. They truly feel the world would be better off without them. And we just filed bankruptcy. I had a million dollar life insurance policy. My wife would be heartbroken, but she'd no longer be broke. Now I'm thinking I got a solution for this. Unfortunately, you have to have a life insurance policy 24 months before you pull the trigger or they don't pay anything. And I had had mine 22 months. I had to wait two months to kill myself. And in that two months, things got a little better and the phone call stopped, bankruptcy went through. And I don't remember day 61 or two. It's like I'm marking them off the calendar. I can't wait. And I'm still here today. But mostly it's about pain. And my suicidality, by the way, chronic suicide, 
be, it helps me. It's one of the reasons I, I don't kill myself because, because I have made the decision I can kill myself at any time. I'm in control. I can stand a great deal more pain knowing I am in control. So ironically, my suicidality helps keep me alive. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's just so powerful. Um, and I, I think many of us have had those thoughts at one point in time, like, well, I could make all of this go away if I just kill myself. What are some of the warning signs um, that someone is contemplating suicide? Well, I mean, to answer your question that I didn't answer was um, there are situational things. You know, it's in my DNA. It's in your family. But there are people who are neurotypical and they, they, the pandemic worried me a great deal because you have all these people who are neurotypical. They've never been, divorced, uh, never been depressed. And, and so now they're situationally depressed because of the pandemic. And if you've never been depressed, how do you know what, what it is? And how do you know that's what you have? And, and so, you know, it could be bankruptcy, it could be divorce, it could be failing out of college. There are lots of, you know, loss of a family member, a treasured pet, um, financial, you know, disaster. The, if we can back up a second, start with signs and symptoms of depression. Um, top three for me are, I have trouble getting out of bed in the morning, but rallying in the afternoon. Either they eat too much or can't eat, they sleep too much or can't sleep. And here's one you can observe on, on um, go to meeting. They let their personal hygiene go. They log in, you think, well, here's a little dirty clothes aren't quite so clean. Maybe because they're having trouble dragging themselves out of the bed in the morning to run a little wash, take a shower. What do you say to somebody who's depressed? Because I get that question a lot. First of all, you don't say anything. You just listen actively. Second, here's what you don't say. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Turn that frown upside down. My personal favorite is choose joy. And I said to the guy, look, unless you're talking about dishwashing liquid, I think I'm out of luck. Yeah. Here's what you do say. I'm here for you and I mean it. I know you're not lazy, crazy, or self-absorbed. I know that mental, I'm sorry, depression is a mental illness. The good news is with time and treatment, things will get better. I'll take the time. I'll help you get the treatment. Now, here's the tough question you have to ask. Are you having thoughts of suicide? And if you can't ask that question, you find somebody who can. But let's say they're not forthcoming, but your gut tells you, you think they're, they're thinking about killing themselves. How would you know? Well, they talk about death and dying a lot. You catch them Googling it. It turns up as a theme in their artwork, their music, their writing. They're getting their affairs in order, giving away prized possessions because they want to make sure they go to the people they want them to go to when they're gone. And giving away a pet is top of that pyramid. They're accumulating the means, stockpiling medication or buying a firearm. Here's one I find terribly dangerous. It's counterintuitive. They've been depressed forever, and now they're happy for no apparent reason. And you're happy because doggone they're happy. Well, they may be happy, Amanda, because they've chosen time, place, and method, and they know this is going to sound familiar. They know the pain is coming to an end. That's why they're happy. So if you have a friend who's depressed and suicidal, and all of a sudden they're happy, beware. It may be because they've made that decision they're going to end their life. Now, let's say uh, they do admit they're having thoughts of suicide. What do you say? Well, you say, do you have a plan? And if they have a plan, you say, what is their plan? And if it's detailed, time, place, method, then you need to get on the phone with the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Or if they're younger, there's now a text line, 741-741. Type the word help or connect, 741-741. But let's say they've got a plan, but it's not particularly well-formed. It's not concrete. There is nothing in the textbooks on what to do next in that case. So a psychiatrist friend of mine 
friend of mine and I came up with. Well, you say to them, are you going to kill yourself? And if they say no, then you say, okay, well, tell me why not. Make them give voice to whatever it is that's keeping them here. Something's keeping them here. And something called ASSIST, which is uh, Applied Suicide Intervention Skills Training. They call that a turning point. There's something, you're listening for something, an opening, and a little bit of uncertainty. Okay, well, tell me why not. And in my case, my mom and dad wanted children desperately. This is back in the 1940s. And they tried to adopt, and there weren't any infants available. So they decided to try the old-fashioned way. So my mom got pregnant, carried it to term nine months, and it passed away shortly after birth. A year later, she got pregnant again, carried it to term, and shortly after birth, it passed away. Now, where she found the courage to try a third and a fourth time when my sister was born, I have no idea. But I feel like I have to be, I have to work at least as hard and be at least as brave as my mother was, to stick around until my appointed time. Yeah, that's really true what you're saying. And um, it does relate to my, my sister, who I, I'd, she works at Petite Queen as well, and I'd hope that she could be on the podcast, but she's in Ireland, so it's midnight for her. But sure. she has she has depression, and she's had suicidal ideation in the past. And it's true what you're saying about having a reason not to, because what she has told me is that one reason that she drew from was her student loan debt and how she didn't want that to pass to other people who are co-signers on her loans. Oh. She's also talked about having a pet, not having anyone to take care of her pet right away because she was living in other parts of the country or other parts of the world. So for her, it's been very helpful to have reasons not to, to, to turn to suicide. Yeah, there, there are. And in that training, that's what you're listening for when you're talking to somebody. Is that sort of moment of uncertainty where you go, can you see yourself? I mean, do you think there may be a reason to go on? Huh? Maybe so. Well, what do you say um, while we work on that? In the meantime, let's work on a plan. If you don't mind, you and I work on a plan to keep you safe today. Mm -hmm. Just one day at a time. Yeah, exactly. Um, what can we do? I mean, you've already mentioned some ideas, but what can we do as individuals to work to prevent suicide deaths? And what can we do collectively? Well, individually, listen for the things that we talked about, signs and symptoms. Because here's the thing. The reason that's so powerful, knowing those signs and symptoms, eight out of 10 people who are suicidal are, in fact, ambivalent. They can't make up their mind. Yeah. Nine out of 10 give hints in the last week leading up to an attempt, which tells me we can save the vast majority of people. It is the most um, preventable cause of death on the planet. If you know what to look and listen for, and I tell my audience is often end on this hope, this note of hope. You can make a difference. You can save a life and you can do it by doing something as simple as what we're doing right here. And that is knowing how to start that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, really, really powerful. And we're going to include those links. So, you know, one of the things that you talk about in other, uh, other formats, I'm not sure if you've said it today, but um, what is suicide postvention and what should that look like? That's after somebody has died by suicide, either, let's say, a company or a school. Oftentimes they, they think the best thing to do is just sort of sweep it under the carpet. They were here yesterday. They're gone today. We're not going to talk about it. The problem is, is a lot of people around them have questions 
Why didn't I notice? Why didn't I say something? You know, uh, and then they have something called survivor's guilt. You know, gosh, I can't believe I didn't see that. I was supposed to have a beer with him, but I had to pick up the kids from softball. Maybe if I had gone, maybe if I had gone for the beer last night, he would still be here. So as a postvention trainer, what you do is you come in because pretty much everybody in that knew that person, worked with them, lived with them, whatever, had a piece of the puzzle. But nobody had the whole puzzle. So your job is to come in, talk to everybody and, and get each piece of the puzzle from them and then assemble it and then step back and you look at it. And at that point, you go, oh, man, it's right there. I mean, if we'd known all this, we obviously would have seen it and stepped in. So, again, that's why knowing the signs and symptoms is called gatekeeper training. You're like a gatekeeper and you're watching people come and go and you're looking for these signs and and symptoms you know when somebody says i'm fine and your gut tells you they're not then be a little persistent no i don't you don't seem fine you know maybe let's go to my office where it's private and you can you know tell me exactly what is wrong again you go with your intuition what you're looking for is a pattern yeah you know they're getting their affairs in order and they're you know they're giving away prized possessions and they're having trouble getting to work in the morning so it's all of a sudden you realize there's a pattern and again, I say, go with your gut, go with your intuition. If, if, you, if it occurs to you that they may be thinking of harming themselves, go with that. Better to ask and then have them say, no, I've got a new baby at home. I've been up three nights. I may sleep. That's why I'm, you know, right. frazzled. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that's really good advice. And I agree that that feeling of that you could have done something because I did have a friend in college who committed suicide. And you, that does, it sort of lingers with you like, well, and it was during the summer, so we weren't uh, together, but I knew she had already attempted once and I'd been like a mother hen, you know, watching over her um, before we left for the summer. And I sort of, you know, you do, you have that guilt, like, oh my gosh, if only I had been aggressive about staying in contact with her through the summer and seeing her and checking in with her and being there for her. And it it is. It's something that just weighs on you. That what if, right? That yep. big giant what if. And that's what postvention is all about: is yeah. decoding all that, putting the puzzle together, letting everybody understand that not everybody, not not no one had all the pieces of the puzzle. No one could have figured that out. And and by the way, speaking of helping, they're trying to change the vernacular. Okay from commit suicide, because commit has a lot of baggage. You commit a crime, you commit adultery. Yeah. They now say died by suicide, completed a suicide. Yeah, trying to get the word, because you know there's a stigma surrounding it. I mean, it's against the law in some states still. So yeah. Yeah. get rid of the commit suicide. Um, I mean, nobody commits cancer. You know, it's yeah. just, I mean, I guess you could, could if you smoke three packs of Marlboro a day, but um, but generally, that's why they're trying to change it from commit suicide to die by suicide, completed a suicide. By the yeah. way, three times as many women attempt as men. Men tend to complete because they use a firearm. Yeah. And eight out of 10 people who die by suicide right now are men. And part of the problem is that men, well, they don't talk about it. They don't really give voice to their, and it's not just mental health. I've had a couple of friends, one died of prostate cancer last year, one died of colon cancer. And I'll bet you neither, neither the guy who died of colon cancer probably never had a colonoscopy. And the guy who died of, of 
prostate cancer, probably never had a PSA test. You know, those things, if you catch them early, are eminently treatable. Yeah. But men wait too long to, you know, they get they get they get a pain in the chest. They're sure it's a burrito from Taco Bell, not a massive heart attack. So, yeah, we're just yeah. we're just not why back. They now call it toxic masculinity. When I was a kid, I think the name is more colorful and appropriate. Big boys don't cry. Yeah. 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 No, there's a lot of things going there. And sometimes men aren't the best advocates for their health and they're not aggressive enough uh, yep. to. Uh, so. Absolutely. And thank you for sharing that um, death by suicide. That's an important, um, uh, <laughs> you know, all of us can change our vernacular and uh, and uh, make that conscious improvement in that how we uh, talk about things. Mm-hmm. So I really appreciate that. So um, and, and everything that you shared today, um, Frank, thank you for stru- sharing your own struggles with mental health. And, and how you are now helping to prevent suicide and bringing this uh, conversation to the forefront. I know uh, our listeners are going to want to know more about where they can find out more about you. I mean, you know, world famous, but. <laughs> That's, uh, well, I have a website called The Mental Health Comedian, or if you're from the South, The Mental Health Comedian. And my phone number's there, my email address is there, and you can put my phone number in the show notes. It's 858. 858- Four zero five I give it out every keynote that I do. I put it on a PowerPoint slide. I say to the people, look, if you're suicidal, call the lifeline or text the text line. If you're just having a bad day, call a crazy person. Here's my cell. <laughs> and people call. I mean, people, you know, they not often, once every week or two, somebody will call with a question or they're or they're really depressed and and, you know, they're kind of playing suicide and I try to give them references and resources and just listen. I mean, I say, look, you know, I'm not going to judge you. Uh, you don't have to explain anything to me. I hear the same music and I'm just going to sit and co-sign whatever BS you're wading through. And sometimes just that listening, you know, helps. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's very powerful. And we'll be sure to include all of that in our backlinks and our notes below. So, um, and I want to thank you again, Frank. This has been such an informative discussion. Um, and thank you, Amanda. Um, and for everyone who tuned in today, if you have thoughts that you'd like to share, you can leave us a note down below in the comment section. We love hearing from you. And also, if you would like, if you have a specific question or would like to suggest topics for discussion, you can email us at jointheconversationatpetitetoqueen.com. And to stay current on all of our insightful advice, our in our breakthrough advantages, and incredibly powerful episodes like the one today, sign up for our weekly wisdoms newsletter at petitetoqueen.com, and you won't miss a single thing. Um, and I want to thank everyone again who tuned in. And Frank, Amanda, thank you so much, Frank, for joining us and sharing uh, this very, very crucial um, message um, well, today. And- when I sign off on my podcast, I have several mental health podcasts. I say this is a it's an old comedy thing, old comedy club thing. Uh, please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you enjoyed the episode, tell your friends. If you did not enjoy the episode, we hope you have no friends. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, I like to leave on a high note. Right.